You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to page uh, 26. If you don't have a Bible in the pews in front of you, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 31, and we're going to continue in our series uh, through the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Restoration. Uh, And so we continue to walk through books of the Bible because we believe this is what God has to say, and uh, we want to come and learn uh, from Him. If you're a guest today, we're super excited that you're here with us. Uh, We always uh, are glad to worship King Jesus, but particularly by coming to His Word and learning from it. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those hard black uh, covered Bibles in the pew back in front of you and turn to page 26 to follow along with us. You're going to need those uh, definitely this morning. Where do you turn for deliverance? Where do you turn for deliverance? What are the things that you go to that you feel like this is going to give me comfort and peace? What what is the thing in my life that's going to make everything all right? For some of us, it's going into the refrigerator and getting a nice tub of chocolate chip cookie dough and just sitting down on the couch and saying, this is, this is going, this is the best. This is how I'm going to do this. My wife knows that after supper, we're going to, I'm going to get some cookie dough out. I'm going to put it in the microwave. I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you some really good information today. You don't have to bake it. Just put it into the, the microwave for 30 seconds, put some ice cream on it. It's phenomenal. It's the best thing that will change your life. But what are the things that you go to for comfort, to make you feel like everything's going to be okay? We can make a joke about ice cream and, and cookie dough, but we all go somewhere. Do we go, do we start scrolling online? Do we, do we go to social media? Do we, do we isolate ourselves? Or do we go to God's word and to God's people? And do we actually confess and bear our hearts open to say, this is what's going on in my life. I need help. I need to be delivered from this sin struggle or from this conflict. Church, where you go for your deliverance is what you really worship. Where you go for your deliverance is what you truly worship. And so this morning as we walk through Genesis 31, we're going to go through the whole chapter. And we, we, we followed Jacob's life. We followed him up to this point. And the question still remains, is God going to be with Jacob? And he's going to be. So here's what we see in our text this morning. God calls Jacob to flee home as an act of obedience and trust for deliverance. Now, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're a disciple and you have called on his name and you're trying to walk in his ways, what are you to do today? You're to trust the Lord because he is able to deliver you from your enemies. Our God is able to deliver us from whatever we face, but particularly the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. So to help us consider this truth this morning, this reminder, I want to walk through our passage. I want you, I want you to have your Bibles open. I want you to follow along. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to look there in your Bibles, and I want you to see the story and how it unfolds to show how great and strong and mighty and faithful our God really is. And after we walk through the story, I want to just provide four truths about this reminder to trust the Lord to deliver us. So 
We're going to look down there at verse 1, and let me give you some context as we start. Jacob has been working for Laban for 20 years, 14, really, to marry Rachel, but he got Leah as well. And he's also worked for six years for sheep and goats. If you remember, his mother sent him to Laban, his uncle, so that Esau could calm down because he cheated his brother. But now it's been 20 years that he's been away from home. But God will now call Jacob to return back to Canaan. Look there at verse 1. Now Jacob heard what the Lord's or what Laban's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built his wealth from what belonged to our father. Now remember last week we had this really interesting interaction and story where Jacob made a deal with Laban to get the streaked, spotted, and speckled sheep and goats because they were actually in their time uh, considered you know, not as much as normal, pure, uh, full-colored sheep or goats. And he wanted to provide for his family, and so they strike this deal. But look at verse 2. And Jacob saw from Laban's face his attitude toward him was not the same as before. For years now, Jacob has caused Laban's wealth to increase, to multiply. But now that wealth is being transferred to Jacob. Laban isn't seeing the return on his investment any longer. And so now Laban begins to view Jacob not as a commodity, not as a resource, but as a hindrance. In the midst of Jacob's difficulty, though, the Lord knows what he's going through. Look there at verse 3. The Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your ancestors and to your family, and I will be with you. This wasn't Jacob's initiative. This wasn't his decision. This was God's prompting and God's promise to be with Jacob along the way. In fact, it's the same promise that God has already made to Jacob back in Genesis 28. I am your God. I will be with you. Now, will you trust me? So what does Jacob do? He goes What is he going to do if he's going to go back to Canaan? He talks to his wives. Look at verse 4. Jacob had Rachel and Leah called to the field where his flocks were. I want you to notice he he grabs them and brings them to the fields for secrecy. The relationship with his father-in-law was not good. And so he he calls his wives. They come to the fields and let's talk so no one can overhear our conversation. He said to them, and I want you to notice the contrast between Laban as an earthly father in between God as our heavenly father. And look, he, tr- he tries to persuade Leah and Rachel. I can see from your father's face that his attitude towards me is not the same as before. But the God of my father has been with me. Laban may not care anything about me, but my heavenly father does. Verse 6, you know that with all of my strength I have served your father. And he has cheated me. It's that same word for deception. That's a, it's a major theme in our story this morning. And he's changed my wages 10 times. Now, this is probably hyperbole. He's probably not done it 10 times, but it's a sense of completion. He has done this so many times over and over and over again. I just expect it now. Not that I'm getting a raise, but that he's actually lowering my wages that I have worked for him. But God has not let him harm me. If he said the spotted sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born spotted. If he said the streaked sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born streaked. God has taken away your father's herds and given them to me. God is in full control. God is not going to let Laban ultimately harm Jacob or his plan for restoration. 
And so we remember the dream from last week. I brought you here to this passage to show you, uh, although Jacob had some interesting uh, ways to try to get these sheep and goats to breed, it was ultimately God's uh, control, his sovereignty that was giving Jacob wealth. Look at verse 10. When the flocks were breeding, I saw in a dream that the streaked, spotted, and speckled males were mating with the females. And in that dream, the angel of the Lord said to me, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, look up and see all the males are mating with the flocks and are streaked, spotted, and speckled. Right? God knows, hey, you've made this deal. I'm going to make sure that the, that the, the ones that are born, the, the sheep and the goats that are born, they're going to be from the streaked, spotted, and speckled. And continue there in verse 12. He said, look and see all these things. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. It's the same God who had called out to Jacob from Genesis chapter 28. It's the same God who made the same promise where you poured oil on the stone marker and made a solemn vow to me. Get up, leave this land and return to your native land. So it was in this dream that God has called Jacob to return home. The narrator tells us earlier in verse 3 that, hey, he's called Jacob home, but it's in this dream now that we know that God is calling Jacob home. It wasn't just the wise thing to do. Let's get out from under our father-in-law. It wasn't just to get away from his controlling nature, his oppressive acts to lower his wages. It was the right thing to do because God had called him to do it. And notice here, Jacob's speech confirms God's blessing on him despite Laban's actions. So Jacob has laid out his case. What will Leah and Rachel think? I just have one wife to convince, not two. And so Jacob lays it out, verse 14 Then Rachel and Leah answered him, Do you have any portion or inheritance in our father's family? Are we not regarded as outsiders? Laban has treated his daughters in such a way that they don't even feel a part of the family. I know that some of you feel that way in your own families. You don't feel a part of the family. For he has sold us and has certainly spent our purchase price. So now it was general practice for fathers in this time to yes, receive a dowry for his daughter if he was going to give her away in marriage. But once that money was received or those possessions were received, he was to hold that back to keep it for an emergency in case his son-in-law were to die or be killed or an accident to happen. So that the father then, the grandfather, could take care of his daughter and his grandchildren. This is what good fathers do, but Laban doesn't do that. He spends all of it. And his, and his daughters know he has sold all of it. I want you to notice how unfairly and, how, and really how corruptly Laban has treated his daughters and their families. Laban is a picture of injustice towards Jacob. But look at God. Look what God has done in verse 16. In fact, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. So do whatever God has said to you. Despite the actions of their father, despite the hardship and the feelings that they have had toward each other, it is God who is in control and it's God who has now given Laban's wealth to Jacob and his family. Our heavenly father is just even when our earthly fathers are not. Our heavenly father cares for us. So what do they do? They leave. They get ready and go. Look at verse 17. 
So Jacob got up and put his children and wives on camels. He took all the livestock and possessions he had acquired in Pada Aram, and he drove his herds to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. With his wives and children in front, Jacob drives everyone, sheep, goats included, we're going to Canaan, and he drives them from the back. Whereas Laban valued his prosperity more than his daughters, Jacob puts the welfare of his wives and children in front. So if Laban comes from the back, he is going to protect his family. And now Jacob is on the way back to Canaan. He's back, going back to the promised land. Well, where's Laban at? Look at verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear sheep. Now, shearing sheep would have taken a considerable amount of time and manpower. Right? He didn't just go shear sheep and, hey, it's done in one day. No, they would go do this somewhere else. And they would do that for an extended period of time. And so Jacob and the family was able to flee before anyone notices. They were able to get out of town before they were confronted. But here's a problem in verse 19. Look what Rachel does. Rachel stole her father's household idols. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean, not telling him that he was fleeing. He fled with all the possessions, crossed the Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. Now, we've seen Rachel struggle in these last two chapters. Really, we've seen her unfaithfulness towards God. And she could have taken the idols to get back at her father. Maybe they cost a lot of money. And so, hey, I'm going to get back at him and take, taking back uh, what he's done to me. Uh, maybe she thought that these were an extra insurance policy. Look, if God, Yahweh, doesn't protect us, these idols might. And we see her struggle with trust and dependence on God. That she thinks potentially that these idols are going to protect her on their journey. She's not trusting God. And the question is, will this catch up to her? And you see here that Rachel is way more like her father Laban and her husband Jacob than we normally thought. And now since Laban was shearing, that is God's providence, right? That, that he was away. He now has to chase Jacob. Look at verse 22. On the third day, Jacob, on the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, right? And he now he knows the idols are gone. So he took his relatives with him, pursued Jacob for seven days, and overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. We don't have a car chase, we have a camel chase, and they chase him all the way down to Gilead. But what, is, what does God do? What does God do? God shows up. Look at verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night. What does he say? Watch yourself. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I've never had a dream where the Lord shows up. But if he told me to watch myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop in my tracks, right? God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, this could mean don't say anything good or bad. But he don't say anything at all to him. Well, we see in the story that they have a conversation. So I actually think what's happening here most likely is God is saying, don't say something to Jacob that sounds good on the front end, but is really bad for him in the end. We've already seen Laban do that to Jacob throughout the whole uh, story, these last few chapters. So God says, don't you dare try to deceive him again. You act righteously and truthfully with him. So now Laban is going to have a conversation He's going he's gonna to work to actually confront Jacob. But God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. Look at verse 25. When Laban overtook Jacob, he's finally called him, 
Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his relatives also pitched their tents in the hill country of Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? It's reminiscent of what Jacob said to Laban when Laban switched out Leah for Rachel. What have you done? You have deceived me and taken my daughters away like prisoners of war. Why did you secretly flee from me and deceive me and not tell me? I would have sent you away with joy and singing with tambourines and lyres. But you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren or my daughters. You have acted foolishly. Laban's got some audacity, doesn't he? I mean, Laban is absolutely gaslighting Jacob at this point. Right? He's, he's saying, what have you done? You're the problem. Why did you run? Why did you flee? He's making Jacob out to be the enemy. We know that Laban has not tried to treat him justly, much less like a true son. Laban has not cared for him. And on top of this, let's be very clear, Leah and Rachel were not kidnapped. They weren't prisoners of war. They wanted to go. But Laban is trying to convince Jacob that he's the issue. Now look at Laban's continual conversation in verse 29. I could do you great harm. That's a lot of posturing. Remember that God has already showed up to him. But last night, the God of your father said to me, watch yourself. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long for your father's family, but why have you stolen my gods? So Laban said, it's okay if you want to go back to your family, but you've stolen my gods. And Jacob answered, I was afraid for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Jacob didn't think his father-in-law who had cheated him out of some sheep would let him take his daughters away from him. But now, remember, remember that Rachel had stolen these idols. Look at verse 32. Jacob says, if you find your gods with anyone here, he will not live. Before our relatives point out anything that is yours and take it. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the idols. Jacob doesn't know that these idols are concealed somewhere in his camp. And so he emphatically denies the claim. And he inadvertently puts Rachel under the death penalty. Because he wanted to justify himself, he, he just says, you can kill anybody who has it. And notice now how the story intensifies. Verse 33, Laban went into Jacob's tent, Leah's tent, in the tents of the two concubines, but found nothing. When he, went, and when he left Leah's tent, he went into Rachel's tent. Will Laban find the idols? Verse 34, now Rachel had taken Laban's household idols and put them in the saddlebag of the camel and sat on them. And Laban searched the whole tent but found nothing. She said to her, Father, do not be angry with me, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am on my period. So Laban searched but could find nothing of his household idols. Now, Rachel was able to conceal her theft. We're going to come back to this interesting uh, conversation here in just a few minutes. But she's able to hide it. Not sure if she's telling the truth or not. But either way, Laban does not make her stand up. So Jacob is rightly frustrated. He doesn't know that the idols are there either. Look at verse 36. Then Jacob became incensed and brought charges against Laban. What is my crime? What is my sin that you have pursued me? You've searched all my possessions, have found nothing of yours, but put it here before my relatives and yours and let them decide between the two of us. I've been with you for 20 years. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have 
not eaten the rams from your flock. I did not bring you any of the flocks torn by wild beasts. I myself bore the loss. You demanded payment from me from what was stolen by day or by night. There I was, and the heat consumed, consumed me by day and the frost by night, and the sleep fled from my eyes. For 20 years in your household, I served you, 14 for your two daughters and six for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. I want you to notice here what Jacob tells Laban. He just lays it flat out. Let me tell you what I've done for you over these last 20 years. I have personally taken on the losses of these animals. I personally have slept out in the, in the cold. I've worked out in the heat like none of your sons and none of your servants. I have worked like a dog for you. And you come and you question me. I have spent 10 times of effort that your sons or you have own your possessions. But look at what Jacob puts his trust in in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been with me, certainly now you'd have sent me off empty-handed. But God has seen my affliction and my hard work, and he has issued his verdict last night. So Jacob says, you've talked to Yahweh. You know that he is on my side. You know that I have done nothing to harm you. You have no reason to search my possessions. And so now in verse 43, Laban answered Jacob. He begins to kind of change his tune. The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. Everything you see is mine. But what can I do today for these daughters of mine or for the children that have been born? Come now. Let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between the two of us. So Laban's, his attitude now changes a little bit. When, when Jacob lays out the truth, when he knows that, that God, Yahweh, is behind Jacob, there's nothing he's going to be able to do about it. And so J- Jacob now is presented with an opportunity. Laban wants to strike a covenant. They want to strike a commitment to one another that they will abide by these two things. And I, want, I want to point out a couple of things here in these remaining verses. So Jacob picked up a stone. Remember chapter 28, they used the stones to mark. This is an occasion, kind of like an altar. And then Jacob said to his relatives, gather stones. And they took stones and made a mound and, and then ate there by the mound. So they have a, they have a meal together. Laban named the mound Jegashabarath, but Jacob named it Gilead. Verse 48, then Laban said, the mound is a witness between you and me today. So this altar is a representation of us being together. When we look at this, when we pass by this, we will remember that we have made this commitment, this covenant to one another. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of each other's sight. So Jacob says, may God, may he be the the mediator between this covenant. Laban says, if you mistreat my daughters or take other wives, then no one is uh, is with us. Understand that God will be my witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, look at this mound and the marker I've set up between you and me. This mound is a witness to the marker, is a witness that I will not pass beyond this mound to you. And you will not pass beyond this mound and this marker to do me harm. So Jacob says, I'm not ever going to go back to you. And if you ever come and cross this mound, I know that you're coming to harm me. Look, look at what, again, what Jacob founds his faith in. Verse 53, the God of Abraham and the gods of Nahor and the gods of their father will judge between us. 
And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now, Laban may trust in these other gods. He may trust in the gods of his family, but Jacob trusts in the father, the heavenly father of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and invites his relatives to eat a meal. So they ate the meal and they spent the night together. And Laban got up the next morning, kissed his family, and he went on his separate ways. So we see here in our story that God is on the side of his people. We see that he is able to deliver us even from our enemies. And remember, the way that the story described Jacob and his family, they were described as fugitives. And although they are not fugitives in God's eyes, they are in Laban's, but God protects them much like he will protect David from King Saul and others throughout church history. Our story reminds us to trust the Lord because he is able to deliver us from our enemies. Now, as a way of application, this reminder draws our attention to four truths about God's deliverance. Four truths about God's deliverance. We'll go through these quickly. Number one, God's deliverance is initiated in his timing. God's deliverance is initiated in his timing. Remember, Jacob had worked for 20 years. 20 years. You could say he's worked plenty of overtime. Right in the story, Jacob recounts how he's worked twice, once to his wives and once to Laban. It highlights his hard work, but also the unjust activities of Laban. If you were Israel, remember Israel would have been hearing this story on their way to the promised land. You know what it feels like to be treated this way. You know what, it, what injustice feels like. You know what it feels like to endure hardship, that of the Egyptians. Maybe you know what this feels like. Maybe you've been in a difficult situation with work. Maybe you've been in a difficult conflict with your family. Maybe you've been sick with no relief. Have you lost loved ones? All of these things are battles in which we walk through daily that bring depression, anxiety, and bitterness into our hearts. And the question is, are we going to let, we're going to trust, we're going to let God work those out, or are we going to hold on to those? Oftentimes, God does not call us out of difficult situations. God doesn't call us out when we've had enough. Church, I want to be very clear with you. Often, God allows us to go through difficulty to strengthen our dependency on Him. And as much as we would want to be released from those trials and released from those difficulties, God doesn't do that. I know some of you in the room have heard, the, heard this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, used in this context. God won't give you more than you can handle. That misses the whole point of that passage in that verse. Rather, that's talking about temptation. It's not talking about difficulty. You see, the thing is, God will give you way more than you can handle. Way more than you can handle. Because it's not about how strong you are. It's about how good and gracious our God is. Think about it. Jacob has seen Laban grow in wealth for 14 years. You got to be thinking in the back of your mind, it's like, man, I'm making this guy so much money. If I go back home, I'm sure I can do this with my father Isaac. He's seen God's blessing, though, then begin to be transferred to him over these last six years. Jacob needed to understand that God was with him and that he knew his situation, even though it wasn't getting any easier. Even though the difficulty wasn't going away, God knows what we need. Not to become strong, 
but so that we can depend on him more deeply and not ourselves. It isn't about how much we can handle, but how much our God is in control. A few months ago, well, probably six or eight months ago, Graham was riding his bike and uh, he's got his train wheels on and, and our, our neighborhood is kind of a little hilly and so he's trying to learn and if you, you hit the, the pedals backwards, it stops you, so he's, he's trying to, to figure it out. And as we, we went down to the, to the playground and had a good time and they're on our way back and he's struggling to do it and we had to take a few moments just to stop and he's like, I can't do it, Daddy, I can't do it. And I, and I knelt down beside of him and I said, I know it's hard, son, but we do hard things. We do hard things. Why did I tell him that? Not because I want him to, to learn how to ride a bike, which I do, but not just because I want him to, to have to be able to one to pedal that thing up the hill and I don't have to push it. No, I told him that because often our God calls us to difficult things. And if we teach our children, parents, if you teach your children not to do hard things, then when are they going to actually trust the Lord when God may call them to do something hard and difficult? And so, church, I want to be very clear. We need to help each other and help our children understand that oftentimes God doesn't take us away from difficulty, but he calls us to very difficult things. Maybe God let Jacob go through this difficulty with, with Laban, with these uh, hardships to be ready for transformation in the next chapter. In chapter 32, God transforms Jacob. He's a different person. But this is the journey along the way that God is using to form Jacob, often like he's forming you and me. So trust the Lord because he is able to deliver you from your enemies. Even when his timing is not like what we would desire. Which brings us to our second truth. God's deliverance involves our obedience. God's deliverance involves our obedience. Now, now let me be very clear up front. God's deliverance is not subject to our obedience. It isn't dependent on our obedience. I believe the Bible tells one coherent story. And that story is that God delivers his people so that they can become obedient. So let me be very clear about that. This is what happens to Israel. Rather, delivered, they are delivered from slavery in Egypt. God takes them out, and then God gives them the law. Jacob had encountered God already at Bethel. God had committed to him in a covenant relationship. God was for Jacob. So this wasn't that Jacob was earning God's deliverance or earning God's relationship. It was already because God had made a promise to his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. But let me also be clear about this. People who know God and his promises are called to obey. People who know God and his promises are called to obey. Not to receive deliverance, but to demonstrate God's power. Right, Jacob, in the midst of this difficulty, even with all these possessions and they're growing, right? it was probably easier to stay with Laban. He didn't have to travel all the way back to Canaan. He didn't have to go face Esau. He didn't have to go face his father. He couldn't just stay with Laban. He at least knew what he was going to have to struggle with. He knew that he was going to have to deal with his father-in-law. If Jacob truly trusted God, then he would need to demonstrate that trust through his obedience to return home. Church, we demonstrate our trust in God by obeying his word, even when it seems difficult and even when it seems like we, we don't understand. But isn't that the point? If we understood everything about God's commands or knew that it would be easy, is that really demonstrating our trust in him? Is it really demonstrating that we trust him no matter what? 
Jacob didn't know what was going to be before him. He didn't know what was going to be in front of him. But he trusted God and he obeyed him immediately. He takes his wives and his children and his possessions and he goes home. Church, trust in the Lord because he's able to deliver you from your enemies. And we then can demonstrate the power of our God by obeying him. Which brings us to our third truth. God's deliverance includes his protection. God's deliverance includes his protection. We saw Jacob respond in obedience to God's command. He took his wives, children, possessions, and he headed towards Canaan. Right? He was able to do that because of God's providence. He was able to do that because Laban was out shearing sheep. God's providence was a form of protection to Jacob. He was able to get his wives together in the field. He was able to get everyone out and escape before Laban knew it. But God also protected Jacob by revealing himself in a dream to Laban. God wasn't going to let Laban disrupt his command to Jacob, and he wasn't going to let Laban disrupt the promise that he had made to Abraham. This dream revealed that God was with Jacob every step of the way. Even when Laban called up to him and surrounded him, Laban could do nothing to Jacob or his family. God wasn't going to let his plan be thwarted. Laban had no power over Jacob and no power over God's plan. Church, God is faithful to his promises. And he will protect his people. Although Jacob has endured Laban's injustice, God's plan of restoration could not be stopped. But now consider Rachel. And the truth is that she actually took those idols. Not only did she endanger her family and unknowingly put herself under the death penalty, more importantly, she demonstrated her lack of trust in God. And consider those idols for a second. Think about those idols. Number one, they're small enough for her to sit on them. Think about that, though. She, she, she sits on them. She's able to take them. She's able to conceal them. And she says, hey, Father, I can't get up. I'm on my cycle. Now, we think that may be a weird incident today. But there's way more meaning going on than just that. The Israelites who were hearing this story from Moses would have understood the significance of Rachel being on her cycle, concealing these idols. They would have been defiled by her. They would have been unclean. A woman on her cycle is unclean, making them unclean. I heard someone say this. What kind of God allows himself to be desecrated like this? Only a God who is not a God. Only an idol who can do nothing, who cannot protect himself. And how can it protect anyone else? That's what these idols are. False idols cannot save you. Do not go back to them because they're worthless. And you see, oftentimes we think in our heads, yeah, that sounds really good for, e for the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. They're, they're not going to help you. Those gods are worthless. They're not going to help you. But how often do we go to those little idols in our lives that have power and control over our hearts and our desires? They're not going to save you. And what God does is he wants to chop down at those idols and how much power we think they have over us and how often we think they're going to they're actually deliver us. Laban's the one chasing to deliver those idols. They're not delivering Laban. They have no power. God's faithful to us even when we sin against him. Even though Rachel could have jeopardized this plan, God is faithful to protect his people 
He's faithful to deliver them, even from their sin. Trust God, because he's able to deliver you. Which brings us to our fourth and final truth this morning. God's deliverance instills confidence. God's deliverance instills confidence. Throughout the story, we've seen God protect Jacob and his family. He has delivered them from Laban's deceit and his injustice. And we we see the power of our heavenly father versus Laban. We see that no matter what you're facing, our God is able to deliver us from our enemies. And thus, Jacob gave confidence. He was given confidence because of what God was able to do. So much so that Jacob is able to make a covenant with Laban. I trust God to keep my back. And if you ever cross this stone, then I know God will deal with you. And so now, God's action has produced confidence in Jacob's life. You see, when Laban wanted to make a covenant with Jacob, it proves he has no power or position over him anymore. Laban basically acknowledges Jacob's superiority. This covenant makes clear that God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, is the one who would deliver Jacob. While the idols of Laban could do nothing. God's deliverance should instill confidence in us, even today. God delivered Jacob. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And he has delivered the church from the enemies that we face. Sin, death, and Satan. But church, we don't have confidence only because God has worked this way in the past. He's done this particularly in Jesus Christ. You see, we are delivered not only to be delivered from difficulty now, but to be delivered from sin and death. And God does this through Jesus. That God would send his own son into the world to live a perfect life, to get dirty, to experience the pain of this world, the pain of sin, and to be handed over, to be crucified on a cross for you and me. It is that Jesus who was killed, our substitute for our sin, our place, bore the wrath of God, and he was buried for three days. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised out of the grave. You see, Jesus was able to deliver and come out of the grave with full life, able to offer it to anybody. And to deliver us from our greatest enemies. It is in Christ that we see full deliverance. You may not be delivered from those painful situations you're in today. But you will be at some point. I don't know when it is. I don't know how long it's going to be. But I know when Jesus returns, you will be delivered from whatever you're facing. And our prayers that yes, God will deliver you from those things even today. But that would be worthless if you weren't delivered from an eternal separation from God. And I pray that you've trusted this Jesus. The one who has been raised. The one who has been vindicated. The one who has been delivered and now offers deliverance to you. The question for us is how do we live this confidence out? If Jesus offers deliverance for us even today, what does that look like? Because although, yes, we have this full deliverance from our enemies of sin, death, and the grave, we experience deep struggle with sin. Severe pain from sickness and death and legitimate temptation from our enemy. So what does it look like? Well, what what are we supposed to do? Well, number one, church, don't be fooled. 
We will still suffer until Christ comes back. We will still suffer. We are no different than Christ. He had to suffer and die so that we could be reconciled. Why would we think we'd be anything different than that? And so until Christ returns, we now experience this life. And notice here, we've seen this through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's a general pattern to the life of faith. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be struggle. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head on. We don't get to have it better than that. And so church, I hope you are readying yourself to fight those dark days, to hold on, to trust in God, how to hold on to his promises, that Jesus is who he says he is. But those promises are are more serious than that. Jesus says, don't be afraid, I've overcome the world. Don't fear, I will be with you until I return. Jesus says, nobody the Father gives me, I will not lose any one of those. He is in control. He is our security. He is able to deliver us. Trust in God's promises in Jesus. You may ask, how do I do that? Three really easy ways. The first way is through the scriptures, through the Bible, so that we read about God's delivering of his people at different times throughout history. It's the same God that we trust in today, that we read the Bible and we're encouraged and we hold on to these promises that he's made to us, that we know them and we can recite them to ourselves. But it's also really important that even this moment, as we gather for worship every Sunday, when we sing songs about who God is in life or death, He is our hope. That is this God that we trust. That he's able to deliver us. We sing songs together to encourage one another. Your singing helps encourage other people who are struggling. And then thirdly, it would just be the saints, us as the church. That we help one another fight the temptation to not trust God. That we fight the temptation to turn to some other idol or something else that we think is going to deliver us. But we turn to each other and we, can, we share these burdens, these struggles, and we help build each other up. That's why we gather weekly. Church, that's why we gather in homes and missional communities during the week. If you don't have one of those, I want to encourage you strongly to say, this is where you experience God's promise on display. That you see God's people living life together and working out these promises together and struggling together. So that we can ultimately one day see that, that prize that Jesus has returned. And he tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. This is how we hold on to these promises. This is what gives us confidence. This is what can help us trust God. That he is able to deliver you from your enemies. Church, will you pray with me? God, I ask you today, would you give us strength? Would you give us perseverance for whatever things we're going through, but particularly to trust you in these difficult days? I pray that you would give us uh, ears and eyes to see one another as well, that we could see when one of us is struggling. And I pray that even in those hard times that we will be willing to share and open up our hearts and talk about the things that we're struggling with so that, so that we can help each other. And I pray that we will cherish your word 
that we will cling to it because you have revealed yourself in these pages. And God, may these words, may your word strengthen us. God, we need you. But we have hope because not only did you deliver Jacob, not only did you deliver Israel, not only did you deliver King David, you delivered us through Jesus. And so God, may we trust in that promise fully until you return. God, we love you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.